You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Patrick, you're back. I'm back. We're back. Mark and Caitlin, uh, it's, as you said, Caitlin, it's the OG edition of the uh, Beltway <laughs> Briefing. So it's good to be back. And a lot going on in the world. We have the Biden administration, you know, really going through a tough time. The economy in a, in a tough spot. Ukraine continues to, to, to rear its head and and, and changes afoot. I'm, I'm struck by, um, you know, all the attention being paid to Elon Musk buying Twitter and just how that changes the nature of the dialogue. But put all that aside for a couple of seconds, a couple of minutes, because Mark, you had some thoughts about how to, how to start the Beltway briefing today. So I'll pass it to you. Good. Good morning. Uh, good to see you guys again, Caitlin. And I have been holding down the podcast, uh, walking around the hill in the rain, and and it's good to have a reunion here. I I was thinking, Howard, that we would do a little turntable on you and and include Patrick here. You've been uh, away just back from two weeks or so with your family in Israel. Patrick is just back from two months or so with his family in suburban Chicago, but you've both stepped back from the trees and and had a look at the forest. Uh, So Caitlin and I were wondering what what this town looks like from a distance when you're not bumping your head against the trees every day. What did it look like from afar? Patrick, you start and and I'll pick up. Yeah. so, uh, as I'm sure you guys mentioned on a previous podcast, we had uh, a third baby. So we've been settling in as a family of five uh, in suburban Chicago. And I'm struck by, you know, when you Patrick, take why little, did you put your hand to your forehead as you said that? Yeah, yeah, that's just the sleep deprivation. <laughs> but uh, you, I, what I've been struck by, I guess, in sort of coming back in uh, and and sort of reacclimating to you know, the news of the day and everything is, I I don't feel like I missed anything at all. And I think it's a reminder of just how the day-to-day news cycle gives a perception that everything is monumental when really most of it, uh, almost all of it is is inconsequential. And I I don't think there's a single news story that I missed or didn't see that is going to in any way shape what happens going forward. Um, you know, we've seen things throughout the year that are obviously big and those play out on local news, uh, channels that we watch. We don't really watch any cable news at home. Uh, those play out the same way. I think, uh, for families all across the country, you know, people are concerned about the war in Ukraine. They're most concerned about, uh, the pocketbook issues that we've talked about on this podcast quite a bit. Uh, But it was really refreshing just to dial in on family. You know, we had uh, in the course of the time off my wife's birthday, we had Easter, uh, her brother's getting married next weekend, Mother's Day, of course, next weekend. 
and it's just when you talk to people around your neighborhood, it is just it always see, uh, is amazing to me outside of Washington how little people really think about or care about most of the political stuff that we talk about. And I'm sure that is not a surprise to many of our listeners who live outside the Beltway, uh, who maybe have a personal interest in politics, but kind of know from their own day-to-day lives that, you know, people don't care about a lot of the silly season stuff. But it it uh, is a nice reminder that, um, you know, most of the country doesn't care about that stuff. And I don't either, so, for the most part. There you go. So and condolences on the Chicago Bulls. Oh boy, I know it was uh, it was a rough series. Uh, no defense, and the Bucks are good. Well, yeah, you ran into the defending champs. That's the problem. That's right. So I had a very different couple of weeks, um, but I think multi-dimensional. Um, as you guys know, we touched down in uh, at Ben Gurion Airport and outside Tel Aviv and, and our youngest tested positive for COVID. So uh, fortunately it was basically super mild and he was out in a couple of days and we didn't get it. But the first thing is it's just that like we're living with COVID and like, you just got to roll with it at this point. I mean, it's sad. We're pr- approaching a million deaths. Um, but the course of the pandemic has obviously changed dramatically. And I think it feels like everybody we know is, is testing positive or, or um, has tested positive and it's, it's everywhere, but we're just living with it at this point. And that was, that was one thing that was, you know, we obviously felt, but um, you know, more broadly, it, I'm fortunate that, this is the third time uh, been in been in Israel, and so it enabled us to peel the layers of the country a little bit more. This time, um, we have an amazing guide over there who Mark you you've used Yuval Zelenkovsky, and um, he's he's a walking encyclopedia on on the country and just a fountain of perspective kind of across the board. Um, you know, for one thing, the media heading over there, the media made it look like Israel was a war zone. And we were somewhat trepidatious about about going over. <laughs> you get there and it, you know, first of all, there were shooting in the subway in Brooklyn while we were there. There were people getting shot on Connecticut Avenue in Washington while we were there. I felt infinitely safer walking through the streets of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem than I would, than I do here, frankly. Howard, to your point about the local news too, like there was one night you were over there on our local news in Chicago, they showed, I think you were in Tel Aviv, right? They showed something and it was portrayed as like really catastrophic and horrible. And then I texted you out of nervousness and you kind of said it, that that wasn't really what happened or it seemed like there was kind of a, it was, that was so interesting. Yeah. It's, it's just, you know, it's, it's misportrayed. The the shootings in Israel uh, are a nightly occurrence in Philadelphia, Chicago, New York, Washington. We were joking the other day, Howard, that uh, our, our friend and client Joel Greenberg wants to, run a tourism campaign in the states and the ads in the new york subway the washington metro 
saying, visit Israel, it's safer here. Yeah. And that that goes to the media coverage of just about everything. It, it's so it's always a reminder when you're actually involved in something that's covered in the media, you get reminded how there's there's a disconnect. Yeah. And I mean, look, terrorism is real. And but they 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 hate it. They fight it. The IDF patrols the streets you you know you're at markets and there are soldiers walking around with their with their guns and but it's not it it's not it's not a war zone and people they go on with their lives and it just it feels so much safer and it is they're almost like fatalistic about it which is you know part of what you get over there in general because you, you get perspective. You just get so much perspective. You are literally looking at thousands of years of history. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting geology there as well, which we went in, out to the desert and um, this giant crater called the Ramon Crater. And so it's it's literally millions and hundreds of millions of years of history if you really want to drill down into it. But let's just say thousands of years of of history, multiple millennia of civilizations coming and going, battles being fought, empires flourishing and, and dying. And, and you just get this overriding feeling of lack of permanence and the fact that we're all, we're all temporary and, you have to work like hell to safeguard what we have because it's precious and it, and it isn't going to be here forever. Well, it just isn't. That's a very timely observation, obviously, with what is going on in, in this country. I exactly. Yeah, I yeah, we were there uh, just pre-COVID with uh, Yuval, of, of course, and. I'm, I'm wondering if if you felt. I'm sure you did. I think you just said it. What one of the most abiding impressions I came away with was how just how new American democracy is. Right. And, exactly. Precious and, and fragile. Yes. Precious, fragile, exceptional, but not eternal. No, not and eternal. Our our national mythology is that the heavens opened and American democracy arose, but that that's very recent and that's very temporary. I hope our democracy lasts a thousand years, but even that is in the sweep of history, an empire coming and going. Yeah. Even the Roman Empire came and went. That's still a relative blink of the eye. Yeah. And you just, you get that perspective in a way you just, you can't other, other places necessarily. I guess the other thing is um, while we were there, we had a Palestinian guide take us um, around some of the, some of the areas, some of the Palestinian areas around Jerusalem. He hosted us at his mother's home for, for dinner, uh, for Ramadan, iftar, 
dinner. We broke the fast with his family at his mother's house in East Jerusalem, which is um, over the green line and, you know, a, a, a um, Palestinian area that frankly, a, a lot of Jews wouldn't, wouldn't go to. And um, I mean, it was amazing. It was amazing because at the end of the day, it's just a bunch of people sitting around talking and eating and and getting to know one another. You know, they, the, the declaration for the dinner was no subject is off limits, um, which was pretty cool. Um, but and, and by the way, these are not people who are like necessarily, quote unquote, modern. Like the young guy um, votes for Hamas because he feels like Fatah which governs the West Bank is is corrupt, and he feels like he has no choice. So it's it wasn't you know, and, and as you know, I'm ardently pro-Israel, and so this wasn't a dinner amongst people who like necessarily see the world through the same lens. But um, what it was was frank, respectful, interesting. Um, and and human, it was human, and we we kind of all agreed that we have so much more in common amongst the people in the room, even though we're very different and live very different lives, than the people on the extremes have on either on either side. And it just it just drove home for me how in our own country, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about the extremes. And the fact that the edges drive the conversation and, and you just, you see it there, you know, you see it there, there were rock throwings on the Temple Mount, which is the second holiest site for the Muslim world um, uh, in, in Jerusalem uh, between rock throwings at the police and, a lot of tension, but it was completely being stoked by Hamas. It was completely driven by a desire of people at the extreme to try to create an image of problems when actually you get a bunch of people in a room together to break bread and there are really no problems. And the same thing happens here. And Gosh, it's it's just eye opening to to see it from from that point of view, and so that's that that was a major kind of takeaway, and and was you know really interesting. Well, welcome back. Thank you, Thank you. for sharing all that, and it would be it would be good if we could get uh, some dinners arranged like you had in East Jerusalem. I think. And yeah, I mean, think about it, you know, Republicans and Democrats, it's not even Republicans and Democrats. It's like <clears throat> the extreme left and the extreme right. They're just getting in the way in this country. Yep. Like we all have different perspectives on this podcast, which is why it works. But we don't like we live our lives. We generally agree. Like I, I just, I think if you picked a hundred people off the street in any 
town in this country and put them in a room together, they'd agree on 98% of things that, that are discussed. And, and by the way, disagreement is okay too, but gosh, the, between the media and the far right and the far left kind of using people for their own purposes. That's all, that's all it is. It's interesting. People using people. Yeah. It's interesting your line about at the party, the gentleman you said who felt like he had to vote a certain way to make a point. I feel like, you know, I remember having conversations with people after the last two previous elections where, you know, people voted for Donald Trump. And it's just it's so hard for me to accept that people would vote for Trump. But then when they talk about why, even if I don't agree with the vote, when they express what is concerning them or drives them. I mean, just on a human level, like I can understand it, like anxiety and economic uncertainty and things. And even if you don't agree with the result, like to your point, Howard, about the gentleman who votes for Hamas, you can kind of get like what makes people act the way they do or vote the way they do, I suppose. I I think that brings us uh directly to where we are today in in our world back home here, and not only Washington, but uh, throughout the country, we are uh, five months, are we, from the midterms, five and change. And I had an opportunity this week to talk to a number of of Democratic uh, officials, couple of senators, a couple of Congress uh, members about the mood in the country. And to a man and, and woman, they all expressed concern about the election. That was the, uh, the, the focus. But, but on a deeper level, just a concern about how unsettled the American people are because uh, it's an unsettling world. You you saw it, Howard, in one of the most unsettled places on on the planet. And there's just there's an edginess. People ask me how are things in Washington, uh, and and I say it's it it's like the rest of the country. It's edgy. It's Ukraine. It's inflation. It's COVID, and people are people are unsettled. People are are angry is in is what they are and i think uh, that anger is being stoked as you said uh howard by by the uh, extremes but caitlin you've been you've been not as far away as howard you were to florida and back at least uh, in, in recent weeks you were with some more moderate is it fair to say members of the uh Republican Congressional Caucus. What what's the energy there? What's the what's the mood there? More more optimistic, I am sure, than the meetings I had on the other side. Well, yeah, Mark, I was down in Florida with some some pretty moderate um, Republican House members, and the feeling is certainly you know a little bit of of excitement and the fact that um, it's I think a fair fairly foregone conclusion that Republicans are going to take back the House in November, just a matter of by how much. And they're thinking about, you know, what the agenda is going to look like. They're thinking about 
um, you know, how they want to solve, try to solve some of these issues, whether it be soaring costs, inflation, um, in their mind, playing a very important oversight role with the Biden administration and taking a look at things that have not been been examined and ensure that there's not too much regulatory overreach that would stifle the economy, stifle innovation. Um, you know, energy is really big and really important thinking about as gas prices are soaring and, and ways to focus pivot back to focusing more on, you know, domestic energy, um, domestic oil and gas, cracking down on big tech. I think there is more optimism, but I will say, you know, one of the members I was with was one of the few he did vote for Trump's impeachment. He voted for the infrastructure bill. And there is also Still, um, you know, when you get some of these folks off the record after a couple of glasses of wine, um, frustration in the direction of some of Republican leadership and, and the frustration of I voted for infrastructure because this is critical for my constituents. And this is a bill that if Trump was president, the Republicans would have loved and would have voted for. And he's still getting dinged and still, you know, getting angry phone calls about his his vote for for such an important package. And I think, you know, that's the, it's hard because there's certainly, you know, we've talked about some of the fragmentation and in the party, particularly in the house, but they're going to have to get it together because it's November's going to be here before we know it. And and they're going to need, they're going to need to show whether they're just going to construct or whether they're actually going to be forward thinking with the policy. I think it's interesting because, Yes, November's five months away and it's almost here, but the primaries are here. And there are a lot of, there's a lot that the primaries are going to tell us about the direction, frankly, of both parties. Um, And, you know, clearly Trump still has somewhat of a stranglehold on the Republican Party. And clearly, I mean, I think there's a, very better than small chance that he could be president again. I mean, I think there's a decent chance he could be president again. I think if the election were today, he'd have a very good chance of beating Joe Biden. Uh, we'll see who runs on both sides. But I think the primaries, as they shake out, will tell us a lot about where Trump stands, will tell us a lot about the state of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Well, and they'll tell us, Howard, uh, something anyway about uh, November, because take Pennsylvania, for example, where Trump has endorsed Dr. Oz in the Republican primary. I, I don't pretend to know what goes on over there, although I traded calls with Jim Schultz this week trying to get some insight uh, about it. Um, if Oz wins, that reinforces Trump's standing. If he doesn't, uh, we probably see Dave McCormick, Caitlin's candidate, uh, as the nominee. And Dave McCormick stands a better chance of beating the Democrat than Dr. Oz does. So it, you're, you're so right that the primaries matter not only in, in terms of Trump's power within the party, but in terms of what we're going to see 
in November, he's going to yeah. lose. He's going to lose some of these. He's going to lose Georgia, where he's backing Purdue uh, over Kemp. Kemp looks like a for governor. A, yeah, for governor, looks like a, a winner there. Ohio is a is a mess on your side, Caitlin. Trump's back in Vance, and not everybody's happy about that. It, it it's yeah. right. That's a month off, and and we'll see. And how about on the Democratic side, Mark? In Penn, just to stick with Pennsylvania, you well, had Fetterman, the lieutenant governor, and Trout appearing apparently going to trounce Connor Lamb in the primary. Like, explain that because uh, well, it, doesn't make I'm a lot sure of sense to me. <laughs> no, but the enduring lesson of Bernie Sanders is people like Mark and I stay the heck. Well, there's just the, you know, the party leaders, you know, the, they're afraid of, of meddling in these primaries and pissing the base off. I mean, that's part of yeah. it, right, Mark, in this race? A, right. It, it is a version of what we were just saying uh, about the whole game. Uh, it, it's a primary. So the more committed voters show up, the more committed voters are more progressive. Connor didn't didn't make the sale with the uh, with the more progressive voters, even though he he moved pretty far from the middle where where he really lives and and believes. Fetterman's got name recognition. Fetterman has money. Fetterman has uh, an appeal. He has a Trump-like appeal is the theory, anyway. We're going to see if it proves out. I would, I would say a Jesse the body. I would say a Jesse the body like appeal. Yeah. Well, don't forget Trump was in the WWF too. So it, it's True. a change, though. I used to. I mean, as a moderate, <laughs> I used to be a believer that the moderate candidate is the better general election candidate. I don't really know that I believe that anymore. I think Connor well, Lamb would be which general electorate you're looking at. Well, I think Connor Lamb would be a far better United States senator than Jack yeah. Fetterman. I can't say with any certainty that he's a better general election candidate there. When progressives say that they need to be fired up and they like Fetterman, I, I I feel like that's my enduring lesson of Bernie is like, right. I don't know. I don't know the base of the party that well. So wouldn't it just be great if D.C. lobbyists could just pick our future senators? Well, this is the problem. This is why everyone in, in America hates us. That's the point. They, no, but you'll remember when uh, the Constitution started, the state legislatures picked the senators. It wasn't a popular vote right. for, for this very reason. Exactly. I don't know if we would do all that much better, Mark, if that was well, still I was going to say, I think the state legislatures have changed over time. I would not want the Pennsylvania legislature picking people. But we also have Howard in the governor's race in Pennsylvania a very interesting dynamic on our side on the democratic side there is no primary josh shapiro or attorney general is the nominee just need to hold the election and and confirm that there's there's really nobody running against him but that is going to be a a general election that is determined in part by the republican primary you have uh a very hardcore Trump candidate in uh, Mastriano, a January 6th guy, literally subpoenaed to the January 6th committee to talk about it. 
And and then you have some very uh, moderate guys who are running against Trump in, in addition to running against the Democrats. Josh's fortunes are going to be determined a lot by, by who the voters pick in that primary. And it, I mean, my guess is that, that we get a, a, a more Trumpian candidate than, than not, because that's who votes in these primaries. Howard, yeah, nothing you can say, I was going to say, there's nothing you could say with certainty about the election. But I have one thing I, I think I can say with absolute certainty is that after the election, I'm pretty confident, regardless of the result, the American people aren't going to feel that much better about the direction of the country. We've had seven out of the last eight elections have been change elections. It's about to be eight out of nine. And the country just continues to feel frustrated and angry at the state of our politics. And that isn't going to change whether Democrats or Republicans are in the majority next year. No, and look, we've got we got some big problems. And obviously we've got COVID, although maybe we're normalizing, knock on wood, to to some degree. Um, you know, Biden has had to deal with a once in a century pan global pandemic and the first war in Europe since World War II. Like we have. And and by the way, like not to get not to take us too <laughs> to too bleak of a place, but the, the 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 threat of an expansion of the war and even nuclear war is like nobody's talking about it. But there's it is scary real. rhetoric. Yeah. Scary rhetoric. So we're in a tough we're in a we're in a bad place. Um, and that's not Joe Biden's fault, I don't believe. Um, but it's we need some leadership to get to get through it. We need some political leadership. The, the one thing I've been thinking of apropos of leadership is um, that speaking change elections, Patrick, look out five years. Um, there, there will be a new generation of political leadership in this country, whether it's Democrat or Republican, whether it's male, female, white, black, because the leadership of this country, by and large, at this point is very old. And the laws of nature are going to result in a generational changing of the guard. My question, and, and you alluded to it a second ago, Patrick, is whether that'll make any difference. Are, are we just looking at younger versions of the same, or is there actually a, a new direction, a new, a new leadership? That I hope so. Can, yeah. Well, as someone, as someone who's got some serious boomer fatigue, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, I, otherwise, I'm ready to turn it over. Howard keeps telling me I can't retire. I'm ready yeah, to turn you, it over. You guys it. like you totaled won't. the car and you're dropping it off with the keys. Like, here you go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think this is the point of the podcast, Mark, where you and I just zip our mouths and let the younger people tell us what 
what the future looks like. How about interesting announcement this morning related, just generational interesting announcement. And I think these things matter with our politics. Airbnb announced a new effort uh, nationwide, company-wide, that you can live and work anywhere you want in the country. Um, I think that's phenomenal for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, And I think more companies are going to start doing this. Big companies, recognizable Fortune 500 companies, not just tech. But one of the reasons I really like it, you heard um, Secretary Buttigieg talk about this in his presidential campaign. As a Democrat, we need we need younger people to not just move to the same six cities. Uh, if we want to have any shot in the electoral college going forward, we cannot keep winning California by like 10 million votes. So it, it to me, it is we positive. Can. We can do that, but we got to do more. <laughs> yeah, we got to do more. We need, uh, it, I think it's a positive thing for the country. If people feel like if you're from Detroit, Michigan or Indianapolis, Indiana, that you can work for a big company, not based there and go, uh, live where you're from. I think that stuff is Yeah, that's really positive. interesting. Yeah, I just think it could change a lot of uh, just kind of the social political dynamics we're talking about. It's not going to change everything, but I just think it it would be a positive thing. And I think some of this echo chamber stuff needs to get broken up and I think it might help. Yeah. But can you, can you uh, work remotely from Tel Aviv? Because I may... Uh, I may opt to do that. We'll, to that uh, time difference. We'll, we'll see what uh, we'll see what Michael Heller thinks about that, but <laughs> we may we may try that at some point. I don't think you can vote from Tel Aviv, but <laughs> you can work remotely from Tel Aviv. Maybe, Caitlin, you're not you're not a big fan of the. Well, I I mean I, I hear what Patrick's saying. I I'm a bit more skeptical about all these companies moving towards this work from home, I think there's going to be a little bit of backlash, a decrease in productivity, certainly a decrease in in future collaboration. I I love the idea, Patrick, of what you're saying about not having these like six major cities have a lot of the innovation. But I would say that's not work from home policies. That's already um, getting a little bit more diffuse with tech companies deciding I'm not paying this insane California state tax rate. Um, and dealing with all these regulations, let me open up in Austin, Texas, or somewhere in, in the Southwest. Um, but I think, you know, there's it's, it, there's definitely, we're rethinking, it's it's like the world kind of broke two years ago. We're rethinking a little, the way yeah. we do everything, the way we grocery shop, the way we communicate, the way we work. I think that's great. I do. I just am a little skeptical about this whole mass, you know. And this isn't just work from home, right? Like this is more, I I think work from home is, is a component, but it's also in the announcement, it was a really detailed announcement. They're, they're letting you, there will be no salary adjustments depending on, so if someone moves from San Francisco to the Rust Belt, they're not going to get, yeah, Topeka, they're going to get paid the same as they were getting paid before. They're going to set up like a lot more in-person monthly summits and things that they're going to have people travel to to get more in person. But separate from kind of the work from home component, what I like about it is just you don't there, there is this idea that in order to be successful in life, a lot of people have to leave their hometowns and never come back or leave the cities they're from and never come back. And I think that contributed to. Rust Belt decline in the Midwest. I think that there's other areas that have been impacted by that. And you're starting to see like Mark's from Indiana, you're starting to see in Indianapolis, some other cities like 
Salesforce showing up, things are coming back. Detroit's got some buzz. And I just think more of that. And if people feel like mm-hmm. I can go to Ivy League schools or uh, you know, good universities and then come home and I don't have to move to New York or San Francisco to be successful, I think that's great for the country. I really do. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Uh, all right. Well, gosh, we never uh, never a lack of material with the OGs, right, Caitlin? <laughs> Yeah. We will uh, we will be back next week and thanks everybody for listening and have a great week. You've been listening to the Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington D.C.